Welcome to the Invisible India podcast. I'm Jessica Kumar. In 2006, I first came to India for work and basically never looked back. My journey took me through learning Hindi, living in multiple parts of India, and after a few years, I met The Invisible India podcast isn't just a place where I share about being married to an Indian, being a foreigner in India, the language learning process, and cross-cultural parenting. But it is a platform to highlight the lesser-known aspects of Indian culture by featuring stereotype-breaking Indians making waves in society. So let's go. Headphone lagake suniye hamare saath. Sabko namaste. Hello. Welcome to episode 69, Engaging with Indian Culture Responsibly. I'm Jessica Kumar, host and creator of this fun podcast that you're listening to. I'm so grateful for you listening today. Today's episode is with Eliza Keaton. She's an educator known on Instagram as Elikuti, where she shares and creates resources for learning Malayalam, which if you know, that is the language of the state of Kerala in South India. I am in North India, where Hindi, among several other languages, are spoken. So in episode 68, part one, Eliza and I compared and contrasted our experiences of learning two very, very different languages of India and all of the dynamics that happen in between. Eliza and I share a love for languages, learning, and also digging into some of the challenges of being a white American person learning an Indian language. We dive into how we as Western women have noticed many snags and tricky situations learning languages of India, which in our opinion is one of the most fascinating and complex places on earth. We talk about how internalized colonialism, white privilege, and white savior complex play into language learning, particularly in India. There's also part one of this conversation where Eliza and I discuss the perils and advantages of language learning and some interesting parallels of being married to Indian men from very different backgrounds. But before we get into the episode, I want to talk a little bit about my upcoming Hindi course, which should be coming next month. It is recorded right now, the editing The research process, placing Hindi subtitles, and double-checking references is happening. It should be coming in March. And that's my goal. <laughs> so why is this course different? I'm telling you that this is not just based on what worked for me in becoming fluent in Hindi. This is a research-based approach which draws from the best linguistic forms that are out there. I learned from what is called GPA. It's the growing participator approach. And I do rely heavily on that for a lot of the uh, suggestions and uh, tips that I give through the course. However, I also reference multiple native speaker resources, which are very centered on grammar and pronunciation. I also do have Um, several things coming up for kids. So it's all coming eventually. One thing that no one has asked yet, but they should be asking, <laughs> I'm going to ask it for you, is why should I learn Hindi from a white person? Well, actually, um, 
the point is that it's because I'm not cutting out native resources uh, and people that helped me to get to where I am. I also don't make myself the primary resource for grammar, vocabulary, or pronunciation. What my goal is, is to be kind of the go-between person. And if you ever used an app or had a tutoring or had a class with a native speaker, a lot of times we have to admit there is a gap. So part of my goal here is to try and fill that gap by highlighting and referencing the best Indian-owned companies and how to best utilize them depending on your learning style. Don't get me wrong, you will be able to start speaking Hindi after participating in this course. It's not like I'm just referencing a bunch of random materials in the course. Uh, There is actual teaching content in there. But My goal from the beginning and my goal still today is about encouraging you to utilize resources by native speakers, and I'm going to tell you how to do that. Another question that I have gotten probably more than anything is, are there going to be other languages besides Hindi? Yes, the first course is specifically designed for Hindi, but I'm going to be creating resources which help guide learners through the tricks of other South Asian languages languages. It's all coming. I'm working hard on this first one. I'm super thrilled to release it to the world pretty soon. Now, if you sign up for my newsletter, there are going to be updates coming about the course on invisibleindiapodcast.com. There is a prompt at the bottom of the page where it says sign up for my newsletter. You won't get an update right away, but when I do send updates, you will get it. So I do all this stuff myself. So I don't, there's not like an automatic thing that's going to come to you. When I do send an update on the course, if you sign up to my newsletter, you'll get that. So, okay. I can't wait to share it with you. I wish it was done tomorrow, but there's a lot of quality checking, editing that needs to happen. And we're working hard to get it done. So it's coming soon. Okay. Let's jump into part two of my conversation with Eligoti. Engaging with Indian culture responsibly. Namaste and welcome everyone to the Invisible India podcast. Today is part two with Eliza Keaton, Ellie Kuti, Malayalam learner and cultural curator. <laughs> welcome. Namaskaram. Nice to be here again. Yeah. We had a wonderful conversation last time about... Uh, what did the process of being a uh, foreign person, particularly an American, learning an Indian language, uh, what it's like to be a cultural curator of a language that you're not native to, and then just some more personal, um, I don't know, just 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 not misgivings, but <laughs> personal challenges, I guess, that we have as uh, kind of putting ourselves out there on the internet in this space. So uh, today we are going to be talking about responsibly adjusting to Indian culture, where we're both kind of at in wrestling through that. Uh, And then we're also going to talk a little bit about uh, colonialism and uh, the place of the English language globally. So again, uh, listen to the first part to learn a little bit more about Eliza and her Instagram and uh, her her YouTube videos and what she's trying to do to create resources for Malayalam. For those of you who know my story, I'm um, a 
Hindi learner, a lifelong Hindi learner living in India with my kids and my husband in northern India in Bihar. And uh, Eliza and I have a lot of things in common and, and some major differences, too, which we talked about in the first part. So let's get into part two. One, I would say one of the more challenging things about being in a space where I'm, I'm trying to learn a new language. And for me, as I've like tested fluently in Hindi, I never want to just that be the end game for me. It's always, I always want there to be more. I always want there to be a further, um, a path ahead. And most Indian languages are so deep and so uh, incredibly rich that yes, there is a lot to learn and it will take a lifetime. So I don't know, I'm just kind of curious about your approach. I know you said that when you started, it was kind of for fun. And I don't know, what are some of your long-term goals in Malayalam? Well, I mean, we always joke, but it's not really a joke that I want to be able to watch a Malayalam comedy movie without subtitles because comedy is one of those things where you can't translate it out. You know, it just gets lost. Um, but in general, you know, I, as I've said before, Arjun and his family speak English fluently. Um, so it's not really about the, necess the necessity to communicate, but I think it's just about understanding the depth of the language and, and the varieties of it. And also just why not? Why not just see what's there? Um, one interesting thing about Kerala, like many places in India, it wasn't one state before. It was like several um, kingdoms or princely states. And so because of that, they have such a rich diversity within their own language. Um, and, you know, just because I can understand things in the Kochi dialect, maybe I should learn more about something from Kasragod, which is, you know, heavily influenced by neighboring languages, or you have Trivandrum dialect, which might have more Tamar influence in it. So, you know, there's always so much more to learn about the local, the localities and the history and, you know, the different food items, the different clothing items, the different cultural things. There's just so much there. Um, I think like with any Indian culture, there's going to be that depth of history and poetry and, and things. And I don't want to be, you know, reciting, you know, Balatol, you know, by heart, but I, I do want to be able to understand more of these poetic expressions in Malayalam because, you know, there are things that are used in poetry that aren't used in daily speech that have a much more meaningful impact and, and things like that. So as you said, even as an English teacher, I try to teach my students not to treat English as a transactional language. Don't use it just to buy things and be a tourist and, and get a job, like live in it, have a language to live with. And so I'd like to be able to live with Mariela. Yes, you can definitely tell that you've learned languages before because uh, those are the learnings that I think you have once you've learned a language previously is, okay, this isn't, this hasn't just changed opportunities for me. This isn't just something to add to a resume. This has changed me. This has changed my way of seeing the world. This has changed my way of living life. And, uh, and, and you can't necessarily predict or even document those, those kind of things that, that happen or will happen. And, um, I know for me, I've gone through a lot of changes, especially even in my worldview of, of how I see, um, you know, right and wrong, how I see uh, truth and lie, how I see, um, you know, gender roles and, and different things like that. It, it, it's, it's living in India. 
will change a lot of things but <laughs> about you, but even when you interact with a, a language, I think you learn so much more than, than you said, just like getting a job or transacting. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about some of the comments that you made during a uh, conference you were speaking at. Um, contributing to like elevated perceptions of the English language. So if you could kind of run through some of that information, I will, I think it would be really interesting for our guests to hear a, a little bit of what you talked about through on um, the Women in Language Conference. Well, English is an elevated status because it's become the de facto communication between companies and it's a huge industry. The English language industry is massive. I mean, if you've spent any time in Asia, um, you'll see the amount of money that parents will spend to put their kids in extra tuitions, the amount of money it takes to take an IELTS exam. Um, it's just a massive business. It's, it's, oh, I can't remember if it was like 50 feet, $55 billion industry. Um, it's, it's massive and it's only growing. And the thing is when you make IELTS a requirement to apply for residency for places like Canada or the United States in order to get more points, you have to get a higher score. And, you know, it just becomes very much a rat race to become a master speaking English. And then it goes beyond just, you know, interaction and communication. You know, you have business English, you have accent reduction classes, you have, you know, and what happens is that in some places, English takes precedence. So like if you take Europe, for example, you're in Germany, you go to a German school, you learn English, maybe even French, maybe even Spanish, but you never get this feeling that German is a useless language. However, in India, in Kerala for sure, you can say that English medium schools have a much higher value than Malayalam medium schools. And, you know, there becomes this value. It's, yeah, speak Malayalam, but English is better. You know, I still do get occasional comments on my page. Why are you wasting your time learning Malayalo? And so, you know, there's this there's this societal, you know, thing of, yeah, your language is good, but it's not good enough. And I do recognize how English can help people move up socially or get a better job. But the amount of classism that comes from learning English, the amount of, you know, hierarchy that comes from your level or ability or perceived pr uh, pronunciation, even in the English speaking world, you know, so it's these things elevate English to the status that anything that participates in the Anglosphere is inherently more valuable. For example, how many scientific videos do you see in local Indian languages? You don't. I have one friend, Nirmal. He has a, a, a series, um, a YouTube channel called Scientific Thummerins. And he's like the only guy I know that sits there and will explain evolution and thumber, you know, but we don't have that in other languages. If you want to be able to present a paper at a international scientific forum, you need to present your paper in English. Um, so there, there are just so many of these things that we don't think about. But yes, the world focuses on English, emphasizes English, and in many ways subtly tells people mm -hmm. your language mm -hmm. is not as important. It's very, it's very interesting that there are, there are a couple of countries who somehow managed to get around that. I would say two that I've noticed would be uh, Brazil and China, where there, there is actually vocabulary for all of these things, right? There is actually vocabulary for, for everything. They don't just throw English in. And so it's interesting. I think that um, 
you know, I wonder if it's because, you know, language does in Brazil has developed like post, uh, like when Brazil was colonized. And then for China, obviously having never been colonized, it, it's just interesting how that kind of plays a role in all that. But it's interesting though, because we talk about English, but English is not the only evil in this case. You know, you brought up China, which is a really interesting example because there are so many linguistic communities in China that have just been steamrolled out of existence. Um, Brazil, you have all these indigenous communities, you know, so um, even Arabic has steamrolled through pre-Arabic, you know, languages that exist maybe still in Yemen or, or southern Oman. So, you know, there is a linguistic hierarchy and the accent or dialect of whatever language you speak does have a precedence. So I don't want to say like English bad, but English is definitely the biggest contender in this kind of, and I think that's why European languages have been able to kind of sit at an equal level to English because they all have this kind of past where they have gone elsewhere and pushed things out. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. So, um, when your presentation before you had mentioned that 127 billion people are trying to learn English right now. Um, and I think as you've, as you've stated, like people are, you know, racing after this, uh, goal of becoming fluent in English and getting a job or kind of being on more of a, like an international, uh, level with whatever it is they're trying to accomplish. And, there is a risk of other languages dying, disappearing. Um, can, you, can you talk to us a little bit about that? About, I mean, I know that um, that's a very broad question, and uh, but one of the one of the things that you're that you're trying to do with your um, work with Elikuti is trying to encourage people to be more passionate about Malayalam and create resources and all that. So, what have you discovered, kind of, in that space? As it's very difficult to navigate this because there are so many different things to think about. For example, for communities um, that need to learn English to move up, their language gets lost because I'm not even talking about Malayalam. I'm talking about like tribal languages and things like that. Oh God, recently there was this video that went around of this influencer couple mocking their, um, their a domestic worker for this local language that she spoke. Things, uh -huh. things like yeah. things like this. I saw that. It's just like this woman has had to learn Hindi in order to work in people's houses and be able to, you know, support herself and her family. And her own language is being shamed out of existence or pushed out of existence and being made irrelevant. Um, so that's that's an even more critical situation. Um, in the context of Malayalam, it's a bit difficult because you have conflicting narratives. You have the narrative of learn English, get ahead, move abroad, settle in America, start a family, be successful. And then you also have the narrative of, you forgot your culture and your people, what is wrong with you? And exactly, so exactly. People, exactly. especially in my generation, are like, what the hell? Like, you know, <laughs> like, what the hell? You know, I go to America and I'm mocked for being Indian. I go to India and I'm mocked for being Westernized. Like, where the hell am I supposed to be with this? And it's it's difficult. And Unfortunately, people want to blame just one thing because it's easy. Oh, blame the parents, blame the kids, you know, but it's so many different things. It's so many different things. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, we like something I constantly say is we update our methods of teaching English, but we don't update the methods of teaching our mother tongues across the world. 
So you have people who go to America and they attend their once a week Malayalam classes on Saturday mornings. And you have a well-meaning volunteer teacher there leading the class who doesn't have any background in teaching. So she's just doing it how she knows it. And that's memorizing letters, a, a, e, e, you know, these kinds of things. And exactly. The way exactly. she was taught as a kid, convent exactly. school. Exactly. When you're already surrounded. By and, you know, um, India, I believe, two years ago announced that they were going to push for having mother tongue education in schools. Right. And on face value, it sounds great. Right. But at the same time, it's like, well, how much are you actually funding these specific resources for these specific languages? Are you going to train the teachers in new methodologies to learn these languages? Are you going to invest in new textbooks for these Malayalam medium schools with outdated course books that do not line up with what they're going to study in university. You know, there are so many different parts of this. You can't just say, yes, we'll just teach them other language. Okay, great. But how? And how are you going to fix that societal notion of I can't put Malayalam on my wedding invitation because English is the prestige language. Even though I'm an Indian giving it to another Indian, it should be in English. These small things tell a lot about how society perceives language. And you know, there's, there's a lot of work to do in that. And so my small contribution to this is just, you can speak it, you can speak it badly, you can get things confused, you can, you know, do things, you can be proud of it, you know, and you can still learn English, you can still improve your status, because we have to participate in this world. But that doesn't mean you have to, you know, cut off one branch to let the other one grow. Definitely. I, and and I, I don't know why, there's this mentality of um, feeling embarrassed or feeling uh, a, a lack of sense of pride about native languages, uh, especially Indian languages. And, and I don't know. I don't know why that is. I wish I had all the answers. And I think that, you know, no one really does. But I'm glad that that with the new education plan that you're mentioning that just came out. Um, like you said, it sounds great on paper. And where we are is in North India in, in Bihar. We, this hasn't hit us yet. So there's the, the, the lust for English is definitely there. English language center, English this, English that, you know, all that. That's there. But the fluency of English has not reached uh, most of the population. So we're not at this point yet where there have people having to like have these dual identity or what they maybe sense is a dual I mean, like, oh, well, I'm more elite if I if I speak, you know, English with you or Hindi with you. And there's not that risk of losing uh, your fluency in, in Hindi or in your other uh, minority languages yet. But if you look at Delhi, if you even look at like, you know, UP and uh, in other cities like Lucknow and Kanpur and these other places where people have a lot of access to English um, it's definitely happening. So I don't know. It, it's one of my goals is also to like uplift the Hindi language. And I know there's a lot of, uh, like, um, momentum to uplift Hindi. But like you said, there are very old and outdated ways of teaching it. There are old and outdated ways of, um, celebrating it there are some fantastic new ways of celebrating it too. Like how, you know, different comedians are starting to do Hindi stuff. And of course, Bollywood is, is massive industry, but. But this goes back to something we talked 
earlier about baggage with a language, right? So like sometimes when you study a language, you also have to acknowledge the baggage that comes with it. So like what you say now, I want to uplift Hindi, right? That's a great thing in itself to say. But then someone takes that as an endorsement for something else, because as you know, in India, language has become extremely political. So then, you know, someone someone from Tamar Nadu is going to come up and say, no, <laughs> you know, so there's a, like there's this thing. And then and then you'll find pages where it's like Sanskrit is the oldest language. Tamar is the oldest language like this and this and this and this. So it becomes like a very sticky thing. Like, how do you promote and say, like, look, I'm not saying that this is the better language or the best language. I'm just saying I feel strongly about this language and I think other people should learn it, too. Not mandatorily, but it should be there. So there's a lot of interesting conversations in in that. Certainly. And I think one of the major issues that we face here in in, um, Bihar, and if you look in other like rural parts, that there is a lot of shame around speaking with, uh, you know, accent. And here, you know, Biharis are are mocked, not in Bihar, but outside of Bihar, Biharis are mocked. And a lot of people uh, go for, uh, you know, um, labor, um, domestic labor or for, you know, construction labor or for driving rickshaw, cycle rickshaw, auto rickshaw in other cities. And so people just see Biharis as, you know, all of the low class, you know, working class people. And they don't realize that. Uh, there's actually a lot more to be had than just the people who shift from here to other from villages to go somewhere else. And so there's this kind of whole thing that's occurred where when someone hears a Bihari accent, they assume that you're like low class or you're this, you're that, the other thing. And, and, and it's a very destructive kind of sense. Um, and so Biharis themselves are kind of internalizing that of, oh, like, we don't have very good Hindi. And when I, as I've studied Hindi and as I've listened and interacted with the language over the last 15 years, I actually would turn that around and say, actually, Biharis have fantastic Hindi. Because many of the words which are used in Bihari Hindi are actually very close to Sanskrit. Whereas if you go to Delhi, if you go to Lucknow or UP or wherever, people are mixing a lot of Urdu and English and Punjabi. Delhi side, it's Punjabi. UP side, it's Urdu. And then everywhere in India, it's English. So if you listen to a Bihari's Hindi, it's like there's so much uh, Sanskritized Hindi that still exists. It's not been, I guess, diluted or polluted, quote unquote, if you want to talk that way, by other languages. And so um, people people don't like, I say these things and people are like, oh, yeah, they, they, do, they, they recognize it. But yet there's this sense of shame because of the history and because of even what's currently happening and the way that Indians are kind of looking at each other and classifying people. So um, it is unfortunate. And, and I think there's, yeah, it, it's kind of funny where two you know, foreigners talking about Indian languages and all this, that's a, the effects of things that we're seeing happening, but it, it's true. And I, I hope that people don't take this as a criticism of India. I think it's just more of like our observations and things that we care about and things that, you know, from us as an outside perspective, not having grown up in multilingual environments, we see how valuable these native languages are. Um, Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because 
there's a double standard when it comes to migrant workers and when it comes to tourists, right? So, like, if I'm coming to Kerala and speaking poor Malayalam, it's cute, you know, like, oh, you're doing your best, you're trying really hard. But then you have a Bihari worker, a Bengali worker working in Kerala, and it's like, oh, he's not speaking Malayalam well, you know, he's living here, he needs to adjust. It's like we have some parallels to that in the United States, don't we? If we have someone from Europe and they have a European accent and they're they're struggling with English, but it's like, oh, it's okay, they're trying, it's nice. But we have now attached this, yes, if we, we have now associated Mexican accents and Latin accents to that specific work and that specific kind of socioeconomic status. And so that's there. Um, so it's just it like it's it's definitely a global thing where we assign values to certain accents and to certain places and we give some people more leeway. And I think that's kind of the core of what my talk was at Women in Language is that as a white person participating in this, I have to acknowledge that I'm getting a lot of credibility and I'm getting a lot of, you know, push and, and you know, I'm being encouraged quite a lot for something that other people, people don't even blink twice for. And so I think it's really important that we take a step back. And like you said, this is not to criticize people, but it's just to say, why don't you step back and kind of examine your bias? Why do we think this way? And how can we change that? Thank you for adding that. And I think that's something that I'm also really with you very passionate about is as a foreigner applying, you know, how do I come at this realizing that, yeah, I am getting a lot of maybe undue attention or maybe not undue, but just disproportionate, um, disproportionate. Yes. Attention. Simply for learning language and posting about it. Um, and then let's, you know, moving to resource creation. How can people like you and I do the resource creation responsibly? This is something that you and I talk about uh, offline a bit. And uh, I would just love to hear some of your thoughts and points on um, that topic. Well, I think that we always have to keep the audience in mind and you have to keep the community in mind. And uh, one thing I do is like the litmus test is if someone did this about English in America, would I accept it? You know, um, a lot of people maybe unwittingly sometimes do things when they participate in another culture that wouldn't be accepted back home. Um, you know, we've we've all, you know, going to communities and taking selfies with certain people without their permission or, or recording people's reaction like, oh, listen to me, speak this language and, and shock this person, you know, and, uh, you know, or create things that are not correct or or act like you're the person who discovered this. You know, these are things that really can affect things negatively um, in, in the perception of certain things. And also, you have to think of the power structure as well um, and how this doesn't perpetuate a power, um, the power struggle. And one thing also that I consider is whenever I became a bigger platform, I, that's when I realized that when people search Malayalam, quite likely they'll see my page first. So that means that for many people, it's this face talking about Malayalam, talking about Kerala. So how can I better represent that and in a way that's more inclusive, that's more complete? Um, because I don't want to be the representative of Kerala. That's, that's not my place, you know? Um, and that's why I try to integrate so many of other creators' work or uh, featuring other teachers or, you know, trying to refer to different people in the community. I think that's really important. And when you gain traction, when you have a platform, when you're getting attention for doing this, I think it's the responsible thing to do. Um, 
because nobody wants to see stereotypes just repeated about them. No one wants to see, you know, I, when I gave my TED talk, you know, I, I was saying how social media is wonderful because people who want to learn about their heritage don't have to do so through the lens of the people who colonize them. Right. So it's like here, you know, am I doing my part to make sure that what I'm showing is not just my own perspective of Kerala, but also a more multifaceted perspective? Well said. And the whole um, idea of passing the mic on where I might be the first point of contact for this, that or the other thing. But hey. Let me give credit to how I learned, from whom I learned, the different cultural nuances, which I am still learning. The fact that I'm not the expert, the fact that I'm not the teacher, the only teacher out there, and that actually the best thing is learning from a native speaker. Um, all of these things are, are, are common um, pitfalls, I would say, of creators who are learning other languages and uh I think the least we can do is, you know, show respect and and kind of reinforce dignity of uh, native speakers of Hindi and Malayalam and just give credit where credit is due. And the fact of the matter is that there's a lot of credit due to other people. <laughs> I think one thing that helps my work be more successful is that I encourage dialogue in my comment section. And so you'll have Malayalis giving their own perspectives. I recently posted a, a a video about a funny mistake I made where I said a slur to my, my husband's auntie instead of, and people are like, I didn't know this word. And someone else is like, oh, but we use this word. And, oh, this word is actually a bad word in my district. And they're like, oh my God, you know? So like these kinds of conversations happen. And I think that that's, that's what's really great is that people come because this girl posted this thing that was a funny story, but actually we're getting meaningful dialogue in the comments. Um, and people are talking about their language. It's a beautiful thing. That's really positive and uh, accomplishing a good purpose. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, Eliza, is there anything else you want to add to our conversation? Yeah. So YouTube, it's Learn Malayalam with Eli Kurti. Uh, Facebook, same name. And then on Instagram at Eli.Kurti. Great. All right. Well, um, you can be found on YouTube. Uh, remind me of the name you can find you under on YouTube. Yeah, so YouTube, it's Learn Malayalam with Eli Kurti. Uh, Facebook, same name. And then on Instagram at Eli.Kurti. Great. And that's E-L-I dot K-U-T-T-Y. All right. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. And you can check out more of um, Eli Kurti's stuff online. Thank you again for listening. And catch you next time.